NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, and welcome, everyone, and happy, happy write-out. I'm Christina Cantrell from the National Writing Project, and on behalf of the National Writing Project, I want to welcome our special guests here from the Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. We are so grateful for the work that this team has been doing, connecting poetry, prose, and parks to civil rights history and civil rights presence. Thank you for making the time to join us today. This is a pre-recorded video. So if you're joining us via YouTube on October 10th, we encourage you to use the chat and to engage with colleagues around this discussion. I will turn things over now to my writing project colleagues and write out leaders, Lena Booker and Kevin Hodgson. They'll help us get things kicked off. Oh, and Marianne Sajewski is here from the National Park Service. So let me ask Marianne if she wants to add anything and then we'll get started. Thank you, Christina. And yes, on behalf of the National Park Service, I want to welcome everybody here to this event for Write Out. And we hope that you're all joining the National Write Out Poetry, Prose, and Parks. And we're delighted to partner with the Writing Project on this very important and free event to inspire people to get into the outdoors and create and write. So Thank you very much, Christina. And I think Kevin is going to be starting us off. Thank you. Actually, Walina is going to begin our kind of session today, and then I'll take it from there. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. And welcome, everybody, and happy write out. At this time, we would like to acknowledge the following people whose land we are on today. We would like to acknowledge their ancestors who lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and were removed from these traditional lands. We would like to acknowledge the Tulip, Shawnee, Muscogee, and Yuchi Indigenous people. And in doing so, we honor Indigenous voices everywhere. Thank you. Thank you, Walina. Right. You're welcome. So I'm going to be moving us into some introductions before we head off into talking about poetry and prose and place with our honored guests here and the and the amazing work that they're doing in Birmingham and the in the outs and the areas around there. My name is Kevin Hodgson and I am a teacher consultant with the Western Massachusetts Writing Project. I'm also a sixth grade teacher, writer, and musician, and other things that kind of keep me busy. And I'm just so happy to be here and be part of this conversation. And through the course of our session today, some of us may uh, read out some poems that we've chosen that kind of that we think would be interesting intersections between our conversations here. So that will be sprinkled throughout. Uh, for now, though, I'd like to pass off the introduction perhaps to Ashley Jones, if you don't mind, Ashley, and then you can pass it off to somebody else. Sure. So my name is Ashley M. Jones, and I serve as the Poet Laureate of the state of Alabama. I also work very closely with Kat Gardner at the National Birmingham National Monument. There's a long name that I always get wrong, and Kat would probably say it correctly. I'm very excited to be here. I was a K-12 teacher, or well, as a 9 through 12 teacher, but we're all looped together for eight years, and now I work with undergrads. But I am a teacher. A teacher is a teacher is a teacher, and I'm very passionate about connecting our students with the world around them and the past as well. And I think later I'll read my poem. I'm going to leave that 
for a little bit later, and I'll pass it to Kat. Hi, everybody. My name is Kat, and I am a park ranger at Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. It is a very long name, and I've had the great honor of working here for almost three years. And previous to working here in Birmingham, I worked in Acadia National Park in Maine. I've worked in the Everglades National Park in Florida, Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, and a small military battlefield park called River Raisin National Battlefield Park in Michigan. And I love the arts. I love poetry, music, dance, and it's been such a joy to collaborate with local artists here and sharing the history. And with that, I will pass it to Nabila. Thank you for that, Kat. Hey, y'all. My name is Nabila Lovelace. Uh, I was born and raised in Queens, New York, but have been living here in Alabama for eight years, which is wild. <laughs> and I had the joy of being the Magic City Poetry Festival eco-poet for the year of 2022 fellow. And through that, the wonderful Ashley M. Jones partnered me with the incredible Kat Gardner. And we've been able to collaborate and do some really phenomenal work over the past year. And I'm excited for us to, to keep it going. So uh, yeah, I'm a poet and, and incredibly glad to be here. Oh, and I pass it to Walina. Thank you. Again, hello everyone, and I am honored to be with you all. My name is Walina Booker. I'm a third grade teacher uh, in Horsham, Pennsylvania. I'm also a poet. Um, I, I write poetry for children as well as adults, and I'm just excited about Write Out and excited to have this conversation today about poetry and place. So again, welcome to you all. And is there anyone else that didn't go? No, I think we've all been introduced, which is great. Uh, right. So happy Wonderful. to have you all here. Um, before we get into our kind of poetry conversation, so as we mentioned, we uh, we all invited ourselves to kind of bring some poems. So I'm going to read the poem that I brought today. Um, and this is one that's um, situated in Boston, uh, which is a state where I'm at. Um, it actually comes from a, a project that the poets.org had done to um, connect poetry to national parks. And uh, the poet is January uh, Gill O'Neill, and she wrote about the Old South Meeting House. So here's the poem. We draw breath from brick, step on stones, weather-worn, cobbled, and carved. With the story of this church, this meeting house, where Ben Franklin was baptized, and Phyllis Wheatley prayed, a mouth house, where colonists gathered to plot against the crown. This structure with elegant curves and round top windows was the heart of Boston, the body of the people. Surviving occupation for preservation, foregoing decoration for conversation. Let us gather in the box pews once numbered and rented by generations of families held together like ribs in the body politic. Let us gaze upon the upper galleries to the free seats where the poor, the town slaves listened and waited and pondered and prayed for revolution. Let us testify to the plight of the well-meaning at the pulpit with its sounding board high above, congregations raising heads and hands to the sky. We the people, the tourists and townies, one nation under this vaulted roof, exalted voices speaking poetry out loud in praise and dissent. We draw breath from brick, ignite the fire in us, speak to us, the language is hope. I like that mm. one, yeah. 
So thank you, January Gill O'Neill, for that wonderful poem. Uh, and I'm going to pass it now to Alina. Thank you, Kevin, for that uh, wonderful reading. I'm going to share a poem from uh, The Black Poets by Dudley Randall. And um, I was inspired to pick up this book by another poet, Dwayne Betts, who said this book changed his life. So I wanted to check it out and just see um, what was so inspiring. And the poem I'm going to read is called Bury Me in a Free Land. Make me a grave, wherever you will, in a lowly plain or a lofty hill. Make it among earth's humblest graves, but not in a land where men are slaves. I could not rest if around my grave I heard the steps of a trembling slave. His shadow above my silent tomb would make it a place of fearful gloom. I could not rest if I heard the tread of a coffle gang to the shambles led and the mother's shriek of wild despair rise like a curse on the trembling air. I could not sleep if I saw the lash, drinking her blood at each fearful gash. And I saw her babes torn from her arms, like trembling doves from their parent longing. I'd shudder and start if I heard the bay of bloodhounds seizing their human prey. And I heard the captive plead in vain as they bound afresh his galling chain. If I saw young girls from their mother's arms bartered and sold for their youthful charms, my eye would flash with a mournful flame, my death paled cheek grow red with shame. I would sleep, dear friends, where bloated might can rob no man of his dearest right. My rest shall be calm in any grave where none can call his brother a slave. I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of the passers-by. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. Thank you. Powerful. So thank you all for just being in the space and sharing that piece of poetry. Now, we're going to move into some poetry questions that we have for the poets in the room. And so I'll start with, and either, yeah, I'll give the question and then you can decide how you want to answer. But how did this partnership, the Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument, begin to work with local poets and the State Poet Laureate? 
how did this awesomeness begin? You want to start, Kat, or do you want me to start? I, okay, I will start. Um, so I think for me to talk about how the partnership began, I kind of have to go back to um, little Ashley who grew up in Birmingham, so nearby these parks before they were designated as national monument. Um, mm. So I'm born and raised in Birmingham. Um, it is the place that made me. Um, and I grew up knowing about the history of the civil rights movement. It's something that was always presently in my mind. My parents made sure we knew all the things that we needed to know to be Black in the South, to be Black in America. And so I remember visiting the Civil Rights Institute as a child, like every year. I had seen the 16th Street Baptist Church. I had seen Kelly Ingram Park, the Gaston Motel, all the locations. I had seen them as a child. And I was very like, not politically active because I was a kid, but I was politically aware, I guess you could say. And I used to, you know, write poems that were based in civil rights history as a very, very young child. And that continued throughout my life. So, of course, you know, once I became an adult, I was still focused on these things. And being someone who lives in Birmingham and teaches in Birmingham, it was always important for me to connect my writing and my teaching life, which are connected in themselves, with the history and the place um, that we're in. Because we really can't live in Birmingham or any place and not, you know, understand the history that brought you to this point. We are all carrying that history with us in various ways. Although I was not alive in the year 1963, I'm carrying that history with me daily. Um, I was not one of the four girls and two boys who died on September 15th, 1963. However, being a, a Black person who was once a child in the city means that I embody them as well. And so those things are just kind of always in me. So when, when Kat appeared on the scene, I was very eager to connect with her. And I don't remember, Kat, you have a better memory than I do what our first project was, but I will say how I connected Nabi with, or Nabila for, you know, those who are not initiated, <laughs> but Nabi and I have been friends for a long time, so <laughs> I call her Nabi. But I wanted to connect Nabi, our eco-poet, to this National Park Service because that whole initiative that we started with my nonprofit, Med City Poetry Festival, it seeks to kind of expand the idea of what eco-poetry is. It's not just poetry that's talking about all the beautiful trees and flowers and you know things that exist in our parks, but also about the people and the history that the park represents as well. And I knew Nabi to be an incredible poet who is interested in history and in people. And I knew Kat to be someone who is super energetic. I mean, it is such a gift to our city to have her seriously. Y'all, you all wish you had Kat in your city, truly. She is amazing. So I knew I wanted to connect Nabi, whose title was the Earth Poet, with Kat and the Civil Rights Monument, which is focused not necessarily on, you know, the the flora, but on the people, the people of the land, you know. So I thought it'd be a perfect pairing, and I think that it has been. So that's kind of how that began. I'm sure I did some event with Kat before that got us connected, or the podcast, that's what it was. Kat interviewed me for the Birmingham National Monuments podcast, and that's how we first were introduced, and it kind of blossom from there. Awesome. Wonderful. Anytime I'm in the room with poets, I am both a student. I'm also just sharing this beautiful gift that we have. And so in mentioning eco-poetry, I heard you say that it's more than just 
you know, attributing earth and the beauty. Can you talk or can anyone on, on our, of our panel talk about eco-poetry and what it is and give us even, you know, more that we can help define this style or genre of poetry? I think so Nabila has like a beautiful explanation that she shared with our group um, last week. Nabila, do you want to share that? <laughs> I can talk a little bit about it. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I can't remember exactly what I said last week, but we're rolling, right? <laughs> as Ashley was mentioning, I love to think about eco-poetry as both, of course, thinking about this natural world, but not as something that's actually, that we are not a part of, right? Eco-poetry so often asks us to think about our involvement in the world around us. And so, when we're talking about the world around us, it's not just some of the trees that we live around, though that too will enter the fold, right? But it's also thinking about this plant life, this fauna and those relationships and what can we learn about it in terms of the relationships that we have with other humans? How can we be better to each other in terms of the things that we're able to learn from the world around us by really understanding that we are a part of it, right? And especially the the, the term eco-poetics, it, it kind of rises from more of a turn to thinking about the environment, our place in it in terms of climate change for in the 90s. But I think especially in being able to, to think about the histories then, and when we talk about climate change, we can't talk about those things without talking about the other systems that made those things possible, which always will get us to thinking about oppression, thinking about the ways that we've been to each other, thinking about class and race and all of those ways that maybe we can learn a bit from the tree's root systems, right? In terms of other ways to be, it doesn't have to be the histories that still affect how we are to each other today. So yeah, I think that's, that's a little bit in terms of thinking about the definition for eco-poetry. Um, that is wonderful. I'm taking notes. Thank <laughs> you so much. And can you talk about the mission or the hope of this partnership and um, what you hope will be the impact of poetry as it relates to the mission of the MPS and, and Birmingham Civil Rights Monument and poetry? And that could be... I all of you, anyone jump in. I know you all probably have a little bit to share. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. And I would love for everybody to share on that. I'll say that as a park, one of our core missions is to have ongoing conversations about human and civil rights today. And so having conversations with artists and allowing people to engage in the creative process, in my experience, is one of the best ways to invite people into the history. And I love love what Nabila just said about us not being apart from nature, but actually being a part of nature. And I would love to share a poem by Mary Oliver, who's one of my favorite poets, that I think really, to me, encapsulates that feeling. So I'll share that now. Okay, so the poem title is I Worried by Mary Oliver. I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it. And I am, well, 
hopeless. Is my eyesight fading or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia? Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing and I gave it up and took my old body and went out into the morning and sang. Mm. Thank you. And for me, what this poem tells me with that last nut, that last line of saying, I went out into the morning and sang, is that so much of what it means to be alive and a part of the wonder that's around us is engaging in that creative process. Um, and so much of that we can learn just by observing our ancestors, the animals, um, the flora and fauna around us. Um, so I think that there, there's so many lessons that we can draw from the land, um, from the lessons that the land has to share with us if we only sit back and listen and allow those, those lessons to come to the surface and um, engage creatively together. So in, in my mind, and one of my hopes is that through this creative process that we actually um, heal, you know, worry, anxiety, fear, um, these are all things that I think most of us struggle with. And I think that worry and anxiety extends to how our history is still alive and with us today. And certainly we have to address that. But I often think it's through creativity, through music, through dance, through poetry, that we can really connect with one another in a way that kind of transcends all of those challenges and, and creates a, an atmosphere of love and forgiveness and respect. So that that's something that I've observed both Nabila and Ashley steward as they've helped us in programs through their leadership and expertise. And so going forward, I, I just hope that we can continue to do that as we consider, you know, how is Birmingham moving forward from this challenging history? How are we moving forward as a nation? Art has to be a part of that. Absolutely. Uh, so beautifully said and so beautifully put. Uh, Nebula, I would invite you at this time, if you would love to share your words on the impact of this partnership and perhaps share poetry with us at this time. Sure, yeah. I am so excited to be able to think and really reflect on the impacts um, of some of the work that we've been able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think an important part for me in terms of thinking about poetry and the land and locations that we actually live in is that agency that we can know that there is something that we can do, right? That it is a fable that life just is how it is handed to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being able to, number one, know that like that begins with knowing that we have a hand in the world around us, in the city around us, in the the blooming and blossoming of, of, of even like the fruit and vegetables around us, right? I'm thinking about a different collaboration that we were able to do last year in Birmingham was with the, the botanical garden and we were able to plant these heirloomed seeds, right? That, that really asked us to think, number one, historically, because some of these seeds were hundreds of years old, right? And how can you not be standing in Birmingham in the Botanical Garden and have this triangulation of, wow, I am here and alive and able to help in the ushering of something else living, while also thinking about what has been buried here, who has mm -hmm. been 
who has stood here before us, who were the stewards for these kinds of seeds before and whose labor was discounted, right? And, and how can I not be impacted to want to do something different, right? And be a part of a steward of doing something different, not just through these planting of the seeds, but in knowing that this is a community act, it's something that I'm doing with other people and that all of this, like this system, right? So many things working in tandem to make a possibility of blossoming, these kinds of metaphors, right? That this is like, you know, poetry can be the practice where we dream the, the things that we get to actually steward as we are alive and, and into reality, right? Just thinking so much about that agency that we can have a hand, yes, in the destruction of each other, that so mm -hmm. many have had a hand in the destruction of each other, but that also, just like with the environment, we can have a hand in the ushering and the blossoming of each other, right? I always think of Gwendolyn Brooks as saying, we are each other's magnitude and bond, right? And so in, in thinking about that, actually, there's a poem by Camille Dungy that I'll read right now that I feel like encapsulates this perfectly. And especially with thinking about the parks, right? This, this unity of being able to, to have these deliberate collaborations and Camille Dungy starts us in thinking about that reintroduction of gray wolves and that very deliberate reintroduction that happens at Yellowstone. So yeah, okay, I'll jump into the poem. It, it says so much more than I can. <laughs> Trophic Cascade by Camille Dungy. After the reintroduction of gray wolves to Yellowstone and as anticipated, their culling of deer, Trees grew beyond the deer stunt of the mid-century, and their upreach songbirds nested, who scattered seed for underbrush, and in that cover warrened snowshoe hair, weasel and water shrew returned, also vole, and so came soon hawk and falcon, bald eagle, kestrel, and with them, hawk shadow, falcon shadow, eagle shade and kestrel shade, haunted newly buried runnels where deer no longer rummaged, cautious as they were now of being surprised by wolves, berries brought bare while undergrowth and willows growing now right down to the river brought beavers who damn muskrats came to the dams and tadpoles came to the night song of the fathers of tadpoles with water striders the dark gray american dipper bobbed in fresh pools of the river and fish stayed and the bear who fished also called deer fawns, and to their kill scraps came vulture and coyote, long gone in the region until now, and their scat scattered seed and more trees, brush and berries grew up along the river that had run straight and so flooded, but thus damned, compelled to meander, is less prone to overrun. Don't you tell me this is not the same as my story. All this life born from one hungry animal, this whole new landscape, the course of the river changed. 
I know this. I reintroduced myself to myself, this time a mother, after which nothing was ever the same. Mm. Thank y'all. Wow. I love Camille Dungy, but oh my goodness, what a powerful reading. Thank you so much. And all that you said was just, I mean, leading up to it, just, I love that, that we have a hand in the blooming and blossoming. Just so, thank you so much. How about Ashley? I invite you to share a poem and also your thoughts on the impact of the mission of this partnership and the impact of this partnership and poetry. So I'm going to start by saying, I wish I was not going after that. Thank you, <laughs> Nobby, <laughs> who always does that to me just by merely being. She is so amazing. I don't want to follow her ever, <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. okay. There's room for us all. I So I switched poems as we oh. were talking which maybe speaks to the power of the conversation. Um, but also I realized everyone else had a poem by somebody else. So I will read something by somebody else too. I had one of my own, but this poem that I chose instead actually fits better with what I think the impact is um, okay. of the partnership. So one thing that's really important to me, just as a person and poet, is getting, getting the voices of marginalized people, specifically for me, Black people, back into the mainstream in some ways. And when we talk about nature and nature poetry, well, first we'll start with just nature, the literal park itself. I don't know the statistics, and I'm sure some of the NPS people have these numbers, but I know just in my own lived experience, Black people are not always, we don't always feel welcome in nature, you know, and there's various reasons for that, of course. We can, of course, look at the whole, like, idea of being displaced to the inner city or the city period, inner or otherwise. There's also our relationship to like farming and being mm -hmm. on the land because of what our ancestors endured. And so there's sort of a brokenness there. And even like the idea of having the time, the luxury to go out to the park. For many of us, all we can do is work to survive, you know, in this society. We don't necessarily have long afternoons spent, you know, meandering through nature. And so I think Generally speaking, I mean, even though that is true, that doesn't mean that we don't exist in nature in some way. Maybe we have reproduced it in a, in a different way. Like, you know, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in Birmingham, but my dad always had a garden in the backyard. So I was connected in that way, but not in a physical park. So part mm -hmm. of what I'd like to do with this partnership and just in life in general is to get people out into the community and sort of reconnect them with nature and affirm that Black people and other marginalized people do belong to the earth as well. You know, even though we maybe did not, you know, take ownership of it as people did mm -hmm. when they came over here and displaced people who are already here, you know, we still, we still have a place and we have something to say about nature. I also think that what we've been doing with some of our initiatives, we have a, one program called Poetry in the Parks with the festival every April and Nabi referenced, you know, being in the Botanical Gardens. We also have one that's at, on the monument, in the National Civil Rights Monument. And the purpose of that is to connect the idea of nature, eco-poetry, eco-activism with social justice because they are linked. I think too often there's like this, this idea in poetry, which I think is fading out now, but there used to be this idea that either you can be a political poet or a real poet. 
you can either write political poems or pretty poems. And I think that dichotomy just doesn't, it's not real. You know, you can have a beautiful poem that is about something, you know, it can be, yes, about the tree, but it also can be about what someone used the tree for, you know, for evil purposes. Yeah. And the poem that I'm going to read, I think, sums up that whole idea. And it's sort of my guidepost for, you know, why I think the poetry that I write, which is largely political, and we don't have time to unpack why I have those air quotes around political, but, you know, the poetry that I write deals with history, but I do believe that it is still beautiful, and it still can interact in some ways with nature. In fact, this poem begins Camille Dungy's anthology, Black Nature, and her whole project there is to erase this idea that Black people have never written about nature or that we just run to the political stuff and bypass nature. That's mm -hmm. not the case. We are interacting with nature, but we are actually interacting with it. So yes, we see the beautiful things, but we also see what we have had to do, you know, on that beautiful land or with that Thing. Yeah. So Clifton, Lucille Clifton has this poem, which is untitled. If you're not familiar with Lucille Clifton, like, let me introduce you. You know, <laughs> she is my favorite poet of all time. Every poet's favorite poet. She's truly amazing. She says so much with so few words, which is true mastery, I think. So this poem is untitled and it reads, surely I am able to write poems celebrating grass and how the blue in the sky can flow green or red. And the waters lean against the Chesapeake shore like a familiar. Love poems about nature and landscape, surely. But whenever I begin, the trees wave their knotted branches and why is there always under that poem another poem. Mm. Yes, I'll leave it there. Clifton said it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I love um, that you said that you want see this as affirmation uh, in your work that Black people do belong to the earth. I, I think it's so beautiful and just so much that you said is bringing back like as a young child for me, I grew up on a small farm, but then also had to work a farm right, with with my parents, you know, right or wrong, this was my experience. And so when I passed by a, a farm or a large, you know, crop or big, you know, I just feel, you know, for a long time, it was sadness just for the, the grueling work of working on a farm. So I had to like in my poetry and in my lived experience, change the narrative. And, and fall in love again with place and with nature and and celebrate that with my children and 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 make that a part of you know my legacy with my kids now so thank you for that and thank you for what what you share absolutely um beautiful okay let's see where we are I think this time is a great time to transition into uh prose Kevin if you want to um take it Sure. I'm just enjoying all the voices and poems and insights that you're bringing. So it's been really great. Thank you all. And so what we thought is that we would do the first part around poetry and then move into prose a little bit, particularly connected to some of the things that the Monument Park has been doing around the Watsons Go to Birmingham 1963, because they've just put out a really amazing re resource. And 
maybe Kat, if you can tell us about like where that idea came from, and I know it's part of a bigger national park initiative, so that might be helpful for some of our teachers and our audience to kind of know about and, and think about. Yeah, so it's part of an initiative called Books, Books to Parks. And true to its name, it really is a resource that is bridging award-winning uh, fiction to national parks where some of the story maybe took place. And I really, I would love to start with saying some thank yous because this was, this was not my initiative. Really, it was the brainchild of Charles Woods, who is an education coordinator, coordinator at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute here in Birmingham, and Dr. Sarah Schwebel at the University of Illinois Center for Children's Books. So they got together and Sarah had worked on the first Books to Parks program, which was based out of Channel Islands and features the book Island of the Blue Dolphins. And they got together, Sarah and Charles, and they wanted to do something around the book, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963 by Christopher Paul Curtis. And so for the past four years, I think, they've been working on this initiative, developing chapter reviews, lesson plans, contacting academics and elders to weigh in on different aspects of the book. And the overall goal, you know, aside from bridging books and parks, of course, is to really inspire some creative, critical thinking around the themes. So um, if you're not familiar with the book, I'll just share really briefly a synopsis. The book is set in 1963. And it follows a fictional family called the Watsons. Um, and two thirds of the book takes place in Flint, Michigan, where the family lives. And they're a black family. And the story is narrated by the middle son named Kenny, who is eight years old. And so it's it's this beautiful story of just like life for this for this family in Flint, with all the trials and tribulations that are faced by a middle child at school and going to class. But then Byron, the older son, who's 13, is having some challenges in school. And so the family decides they want to travel down to Birmingham to visit family there and kind of like straighten Byron out a little bit. So they hit the road, and then the last third of the book takes place in Birmingham, and it culminates um, in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which, of course, took place September 15th, 1963. Um, so it's a really powerful book, um, and I think just another really beautiful example of how um, historical fiction, how the arts can really bring history to life. We have had so many students attend field trip programs with us and they've read the book and those characters are as alive to them as historical figures are. And it, it really, I think, allows a window for these children, these youth to understand the story and care. I, I read a study many years ago about the role of fiction in increasing empathy among young people, among all of us. And as I think about the overall goals of our park and, and what we hope to accomplish, I think uh, we could all use a little bit more empathy. So that's really the goal of the project. I'm sure we'll drop a link in the, the YouTube channel for folks to take a look, but um, the resources are free for teachers. And we're also requesting feedback too, because we want to have this be a resource that's available for teachers for many years to come. And I should also say, it's not just teachers, it's families who are reading the book or, or young people who are reading the book. So yeah, I'll, I'll pause there and see if there's any follow-up questions. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that getting the overview is really helpful. And it is a beautiful book and seeing the world through Kenny's eyes at that time period, I think is really powerful all the way through. When I was looking at the resource, I was just amazed by the the range of archival materials that you've been able to pull into that resource that for as a teacher who's taught that book in the past was just 
stunning for me. So that was really kind of great. I saw things like cereal box commercials, right? And, and temperature charts from Flint, Michigan, where they're complaining about how cold it is to newspaper clippings and all sorts of like really fantastic materials that are readily available for, in this case, I'm, I'm thinking through the teacher lens here, right? That would make the story and the time period and place, I think, more alive in a lot of ways. So thank you and to your team for, I think, for doing all that. How do you think primary sources kind of help readers connect to a sense of place, would you say? Yeah, I think that, you know, when we interpret facts and figures, we're, we're, applying our own interpretation. And I think it can be really powerful for kids to learn to let the facts speak for themselves. You know, if we're looking at, you know, for example, climate change, which Nabila brought up earlier, if we're looking at like temperature in Flint in, you know, 1950 versus temperature in Flint today, those facts and figures are just going to show us those changes, for example. So I, I think that it's really powerful for kids to learn that so much of what they're taught in history books is an interpretation of facts and figures. And then also for them to question like, whose facts and figures are they? You know, whose voice is is featured? So that's a really big component of the work. And yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just pretty outstanding the work that the University of Illinois um, in particular put into collecting all of those primary source materials. We we also made a similar push with our, our Junior Ranger book, which I know we'll discuss later, um, where we worked, we collaborated with all of our partners to put this book together. And one of the things that we really wanted to do uh, was feature primary sources, such as photographs, such as testimony from elders in the community. And I think that that really, again, it brings that history to life. And it I think allows young people to see just how our interpretation of history is formed. And in, in a lot of ways, it allows them to form their own conclusions. And when I think of like what the goals of critical thinking skills are, it's, you know, in my mind, it's ultimately how do you absorb information? How do you seek out appropriate facts and figures and ensure that you're gathering a broad data set and come to your own conclusions? And that's really what we hope to empower students to do. And, and one of the taglines that I often share about the goals of interpretation, which is my job, is, is that we're not here to tell people what to think. We're, we are here to tell people what to think about. And the way that we can do that responsibly is really by relying heavily on primary source materials. Thank you. That's great. Do you think the, you know, the reading of the book and then the materials in that the time period of 1963 Birmingham, does that help us understand Birmingham today at all, would you say? I think Ashley talked about a little bit this earlier, perhaps in her own experience of living and growing up and being part of that community. But I was just curious about that connection between historical fiction, other kinds of prose, the historical documents, and then thinking about the city of Birmingham today. And I guess anybody can jump in on that. Yeah, and I I think that Ashley is probably far more well-versed in that than I am. So I'm going to pass the mic to her. Okay, so I think for one, just speaking as somebody from Birmingham, reading historical fiction, even without the facts and figures, about the place that you live in makes it seem like a real place, which is super important, especially being from the South. Like, we are almost conditioned to think that this is not a real place, you know, or it's not a desirable place. It's not a place that should be the backdrop of a story at all. So just even without the facts and figures, just to have the book in existence that talks about this place is huge. I remember as a child reading The Watsons Go to Birmingham and really feeling like, oh, Birmingham, like this means something. It's more than just 
oh, Birmingham, not Atlanta. You know, it's, this is the place. When you add in facts and figures, I think you can begin to compare and contrast, you know, how things were back then and how they are now. I think for us in Birmingham to see an account of this event, of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church from a different perspective is helpful because like the whole country, I think, but especially here, since we're so used to hearing the story, we can become desensitized to it. And so having another entry point is really important. As far as like students understanding the world, you know, from these facts and figures to see like how things might have been in 1963 and compare that to now is useful in so many ways. I remember as recently as just last year telling students of all ages, you know, when I'm talking about uh, civil rights movement, it would not have been okay for me to teach many of you that was illegal, you know, for me to do. And that's something they don't always think about, but to be able to see that information by reading um, newspaper articles or watching documentaries, whatever is available to them, having their eyes open to those facts does impact how they move forward in the future. They might, for one, be more grateful and more empathetic toward others, knowing what the, the, the case was back in that time. And it also might propel them to get more involved in social justice and activism to try to open up things even further so that we can actually say we've made significant progress thought-wise, you know, since 1963. I think we can obviously say, of course, like, there have been many laws passed, you know, and I'm able to, for example, look cat in the eye when I see her on the street without any issue. However, the hearts and minds of, of people have not necessarily made the moves that we've loved them to across this 60 years. And it really can be as simple as interacting with a piece of art to kind of open that space up. So I think students and adults should read, you know, this book and many others to try to just break through some of the preconceived notions about the past and about the present. Great. Thank you, Ashley. Does anybody else want to jump in? I could jump in. Real yeah, quick. of course. Please do. <laughs> I, I I, also, it's so funny. I was telling Kat when Kat first told me about this event. Like, I remember being a child and reading this book in public school. And I, of course, you know, was in Queens at the time. But I think, number one, seeing a, fa- seeing a Black family go on this trip back also to the South, who's living in the Midwest, like just thinking about the journeys of Black people in this country, thinking about the great migration and the ways that culture moves around the country is one thing that I also love about this book. And and especially in terms of thinking about location, like what are the things that have shaped the location that you live in, the political histories that you've lived through, right? Like why my friends in Detroit, their accent sounds very similar to some of my friends here, right? Like, and Chicago sounds so similar in some ways to Mississippi and learning those kinds of, the, the kinds of migration on one hand to be able to think about the ways that location where you are isn't just about where you physically are, that there's so much that has gone into shaping the political history of it, but also that place is political, right? That everywhere, not just Birmingham as a space, but so importantly, especially, right, to feature a place like Birmingham and thinking about this historically. But also it did make me also think about like, even as a kid, not in these terms necessarily, right? But the politics of the places that I live on, right? Like I live in New York, which has this like, you know, mythos and mythology, you know, when I'm like eight. But when I become a teenager, I find out about the, you know, the the history of um, slaves being sold near Wall Street, right? Like there's a, there's a marker, but it's so small, right? Like 
and that isn't something that has a lot of like like a there, there isn't a lot of shine in order to talk about those kinds of histories that still affect the places that we are today. So moving down here, especially and being so enmeshed in a new place really made me think expansively about the locations that I live, that I have lived in, right? And like, what did I maybe not think about in terms of the grounds that I was literally walking on every day, right? And, and the politics of that place, but also that place is so political, that who gets access to parks is political, that who gets to, to be nearer to trees and not near trees is political, right? And even like what places get to be real places and don't, right? Like is political. And so I, I think to be able to, to have books that do exactly what Ashley was saying, that like help us know that like, nah, like the places that are, are sometimes purposefully, right? Like only given one version of how they are and how they can be, that that is a political choice. And to, to decide to show it differently is a, is a political choice that we can all take too, right? Like creatively and also in, in our everyday in terms of what we decide to center about the places that we live, what we decide to learn about the places that we live and what we decide to teach about the places that we live. Yeah, that's great. So it's great insights. And and really the the power of poetry is earlier and prose and all literacy, right? That can open up our eyes to different places in a lot of ways. And I mean, that's really, you know, the the center of write out, we hope, for a lot of teachers and then their students and families that are also gathering information and resources to help them. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to pass it to Walina as we kind of move into our last segment around talking about parks a little bit. Awesome. Okay, thank you. This is such a rich discussion. Nebula, as you were talking, I was thinking about Ngozi Adichie and her powerful segment on the danger of a single story and only seeing one story of a place or a people. Very, very powerful um, and changing the narrative of the South and, and, and what places are seen as value, valued and whose stories are celebrated. So powerful. Uh, going into parks, I thought this might be a good um, lead-in to share another poem with you. So I'm going to actually share a poem that I wrote um, this summer. This um, In July marked the eight-year anniversary since the death of Sandra Bland, the civil rights activist whose her stories very powerful. Uh, just during her anniversary, Dr. Beatrice King was saying, say her name, and she posted that on social media. And, and I just kind of sat with that, you know, what, what that meant to me in, in the moment. So in talking about civil rights and our conversation and place, I want to uh, share that with you now. Sandra Bland, in loving memory and in solidarity we forever stand. Cause of death, a traffic stop. She died while in custody of the Waller County, Texas cops. She was a civil rights leader, speaking her truth, warning Black folk of the dangers that could befall them too especially if you're caught driving while black. It may end 
in your death. Facts are just the facts. Beatrice King reminds us to say her name. When we do, we join her family in shining a light on their pain. We now bear the burden of speaking her truth, telling the world a woman lost her life while fighting injustice for me and for you. We will never give up the fight. Say her name with all your might. Thank you. And with that, and we talk a little bit more about parks and place, I do invite both Ashley and Nebula to share, if you would like at this time, any poetry that's speaking to you in the room right now. I always say like what, when you feel the room and you gather with poets and writers, something just speaks to you and you just like, this is it. So definitely feel invited to share at this time. And I'll also just lay a question out while you're thinking, and you can speak to this question or share any poetry that's coming to your heart right now. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but feel free to re-emphasize re the role of national parks in preserving historical and cultural stories. Um, and... I invite you to speak to that now or share if you'd like uh, a poem that's speaking to you right now. Sure, I will do both and get out of the way before Nabi does it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I do think that um, national parks really play an important role in preserving cultural history in so many ways. For one, mm -hmm. just the physical space itself existing and being preserved is part of that um, process. I'm thinking specifically now about our monument here in Birmingham and how, you know, I was able to touch that part of my history because I could literally see it. I could walk, you know, up to the church. I could walk through Kelly Ingram Park. That We talked earlier about how history comes alive when you're able to see those primary sources. And I think that applies to the actual park itself. It is also a primary source. So being able to actually be there and have it so well preserved and have all of the historical markers you know, be large, to Nabi's point earlier, to like be important in the space um, really means a lot. And I will just read a poem of my own. Now that, well, Lena, you've, you've cleared the room for us to do <laughs> such a thing um, that is set in Kelly Ingram Park, which is a part of our National Monument, of course. I will just very briefly give the history. As I said, I'm a teacher, can't leave it alone, have to, you know, give, you know, the, the context. So this is about the Children's March, which occurred in 1963 in Birmingham. The short version is one part of the Birmingham campaign involved young people because the adults were, you know, losing jobs or, you know, just getting threatened, you know, by employers for being a part of the, this movement. Um, and so the children were encouraged to protest. They did. As we know, our constitution allows us to do that. Not going to get into the Constitution because that's a whole other can of worms, but it does allow us to do that, you know. And so they were marching peacefully and were met by Bull Connor, who was the commissioner of safety. Super ironic title for him because he was like the worst. Very, very 
just mean-spirited man. And when he asked the children to stop marching, and of course they didn't because it was their right to do so, he asked the fire department to spray them at full force with their fire hoses, and he released police dogs as well. So this poem is in their voice, and it's called Birmingham Fire and Rescue Haiku, 1963. So it's a series of haiku. What about us said we were on fire? What said extinguish quickly, fill up the hose and set the dogs loose? Could they smell our confusion or was it our singing? Were our voices like sirens, a chorus of blood? We were wet black seeds in that raw Birmingham flesh. We germinated. Did the photos show our fingers stretching like roots? Did they show our eyes how they reached sunward to the hot, bright, silent star that could turn water to steam, seeds to fruit? Did they see themselves become our fertilizer? Mm. Thank you so much. Wow, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Ashley. Nekma, would you like to share or? Oof, 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 oof. I know. <laughs> ah, thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. Mm. I'm just always so grateful for Ashley's work. Yeah, just taking a little moment for a second. Yes, absolutely. I, this has been such a, just what a time. I, I really feel grateful on, on what it means to, you know, what parks allow us to do in terms of thinking about ourselves and nature in concert. I feel like I, I talk about that a lot, but I think it's also a lot of what I feel really grateful to have learned in a lot of ways from moving to Alabama, being in New York and, and living, you know, growing up in New York for so long, I think I had really discounted the, the relationship that I had had with nature. I was so used to really just kind of so much building, so much street, mm -hmm. and not even necessarily thinking about where nature is in that. Like now, because of living down here and really being very thoughtful about location and place and um, just being enmeshed in so much uh, space that I had never seen before, it really, as a, as, a, as a person, especially as a Black person, as Ashley was talking about, I think number one, it healed so much of my relationship to land. And it also gave me so much possibility as to literally what any life could be, right? Like just seeing so much space where so much is happening, just nature amongst itself, like taking drives from here to Mississippi or even driving, I live in Tuscaloosa. And so I'll come up to Birmingham to do some of our collaborations and even in moving here and, and in that drive, being able to see so many different kinds of birds, being able to see, you know, so much of life seemingly uninterrupted um, really uh, was uh, such an, a, a stimulant and an aid for my imagination. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, talking to friends about the sky, you know, I would have friends back in New York who would start to stand on their roofs more and like 
they would talk about the different birds that they were seeing, you know, um, and, 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 and it's like, it's, it's this, it was so significant for me to be able to really note the ways that this was not just helping me in terms of a, a, a kind of healing, but also expanding my imagination through this kind of inquisition. And especially through thinking about the relation of us to nature, right? That these things are not a part that even when we're talking about New York and even down here too, that so much of what we see is actually intentional, purposeful, mm. right? And so it also made me be thoughtful of like, who gets parks and who doesn't, which I, I was saying earlier, but also even like who gets sidewalks and who doesn't, mm. right? Like, and so I'll, I'll read a poem that I think came from this kind of, of line of, of thinking of mine and yeah, and then maybe I'll, I'll say one, one more thing briefly in thinking about the poem. So the title of the poem is why I couldn't tell a pigeon from a dove. And <laughs> um, I uh, have uh, two of these by the, the same name. Um, and uh, this, this one that I, I'll read um, is the, the first one that I had written. Uh, the second one, Ashley actually so kindly uh, published in the Poetry Foundation. Um, but this first one, they both came from walks, like literally walking around Tuscaloosa where I live and being really thoughtful about these exact things because where I live, I see the sidewalk cut off at an area, right? Like there's a whole side of town where there's no sidewalk to get you to downtown and to start understanding that those choices are purposeful, same ways as like where we decide gets to be downtown even, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that, that these decisions as to how cities are laid out and where trees are in even uh, approximation of that, where trees get to live, where dandelions get to live, mm -hmm. what gets to be decided as a weed, who gets to be decided as dispensable or not, right? Why I couldn't tell a pigeon from a dove Downtown, up they were, perched on telephone wire. Their retinas above us and our unplanted must. My sister points and where I see tight ropes, background, the sky, she guides my wandering, my unfocused eye to spy doves. I query distance between them and pigeons. Handy search engines flatten this risen sediment. Us set apart in our gawk, walk into further downtown, a path of flowers painted in pixels. One dandelion, rebel tall in a sea curated short. Plant dressing walkways, smooth lanes, sprinkles of chosen flowers, wider sidewalks, sidewalks all downtown, downtown. I know what a pigeon knows to be intrusion, halted, 
unhoused and still get fly. Wow. Mm. Thank you so, so much. Whew. I am loving this, ladies and gentlemen. This is this was um this has been amazing. Uh, let's see where we are. I think this is a good way to to just kind of bring it all together and maybe share some inspiration for teachers and their students and how we or you suggest that teachers can pick up this work and 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 take it back to their places and spaces. Can you speak to how teachers might go about connecting poetry and place and historical stories perhaps to the land and, and places where they are? How how can we send some of this amazing work out into the world even further outside of Birmingham and to teachers watching today? Um, I can start by sharing some of the resources that we have available for free. So in our Junior Ranger book, which I think will be available when this is posted, that is downloadable for teachers for free. And we're also happy to mail that to them. And even though the story that we commemorate is specific to Birmingham, these issues were nationwide. So when we, we look at like who's welcome into parks, for example, um, the Park Service just published a few years ago, a few resource studies on African-American travel. And as we, I think many of us know through learning about the Negro Motorist Green Book, uh, which was a travel guide for African-Americans mm -hmm. for the 40s and 60s, uh, it was incredibly dangerous. And that included even on federal lands, such as Shenandoah, uh, where they had separate facilities. And that's something that the Park Service um, is is reckoning with. And it's, it's, it's a challenging history. So when we look at that history, even though it's a case study of Birmingham, those issues existed in Gary, Indiana. They existed in Detroit, Michigan. Um, it, it was not a Southern problem. And, and when I was growing up, that's the way uh, it was taught to me as a, as a child in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so it's really sort of shifted my perspective on how this, it, this history is not Southern. It's, it's our American, our shared American history. Mm -hmm. And a specific way that we we work to tie that history to the arts and to poetry in particular in our Junior Ranger book is on page six, there's just a slice of cardboard in the middle of the Junior Ranger book, a picture of cardboard. And one of the things that we learned in speaking with elders is that, you know, African-Americans oftentimes were not allowed to try on clothes, including shoes, when they wanted to purchase clothes or, or shoes. So what a lot of the folks in the community did at the time is they would trace the outline of the sole of their foot on a piece of cardboard. And they would bring that piece of cardboard into the store so they could hold up that piece of cardboard and compare it to the shoe and see if a shoe might fit. So we, we asked students in the Junior Ranger book to write a poem from like the, the foot's perspective kind of riffing on that, like walk a mile in my shoes. So I, there's a lot of activities in the book that I like that, that I think are really evocative. And the other thing that I would encourage folks to do is just look, look where the absences are, whose voice is, is heard, whose voice is not. One of the partnerships that we had with Nabila most recently is we're looking at the prison system in Alabama and the Department of Justice is, is suing the corrections the Department of Corrections in Alabama for um, civil and human rights abuses. So we, we did this three-part study where the first event was looking at the history of the prison system in Alabama and much of the South, which 
derives from convict leasing, which I won't get into, but that's something definitely to look into. But one of the things that we start with, one of the, the facts that we start with is that a quarter of the population in Alabama is Black, but a half of the prison population is Black. And, and why is that? So asking ourselves these, these questions, why is that? And then the event that Nabila helped facilitate, we featured poetry from incarcerated people. And there, you know, we think about whose voices are, are absent oftentimes, you know, their voices are the ones that are that are often missing. And th that's what we were looking at in this particular event. So I would just, I would really encourage, you know, especially teachers as they're looking at these different historical, at looking at history or looking, connecting history to current events, um, asking themselves whose voice is heard, whose voice is not heard, and how can the arts be incorporated to bring those voices to life? Um, and I know for me, that's been just a really powerful opportunity to not only like learn the history, but feel the history, because um, it's it's felt by all of us. And, and I'll just close by saying that one of the things I hear a lot when we do field trip programs, I'll ask kids, what are civil rights? And oftentimes the response is, oh, that's the thing that Black people got, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is, you know, children are the most charming creatures ever. I love them. And we can learn through mu so much through their answers. And what I, what I would really remind teachers is that the Black-led civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s granted all of us civil rights. And we all benefit from that, move that movement. And if we can really tie the history back to that legislation and what it's meant to protect and how that legislation ties back to our constitution and these incredibly beautiful ideals on which our country was built, um, we are a country in progress. Uh, we may always be, but what I think is so valuable for us to do is to celebrate those milestones and the people's whose, whose sacrifices led us to those incremental improvements. And to remember always that, that civil rights is something that we all, all of us benefit from. Wow. Thank you. Kat, as you were talking, I just started thinking about poet Amanda Gorman and her inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, and especially that ending with connecting light and talking about the light within all of us, and if we're only brave enough to see it and brave enough to be it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will invite our guests, Ashley Nebula, if you have any final final thoughts on how just encouraging teachers and to and poets uh, and students to take this work further and continue writing about parks, place, history, stories. You're welcome to share those final thoughts now. I would just say that it's really important to engage with your national parks. All of these partnerships were made possible by simply reaching out. That's mm. all we did was say, hi, I love this thing. Can you help me with it? You know, it was very, very simple. The parks are there for us. So it could be as simple as setting up a field trip with your students or doing any sort of virtual, you know, engagement that's available to you. But just try, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out at first. Just get the kids into the nature and the rest will kind of, you know, start happening. And, you know, write along with your students. I think that's really important, too, for teachers, you know, to do the things that they're asking their students to do because you're going to learn a lot um, as well. So, and there's so many poetry resources out there. You can just type in how to write a poem and something will appear. So, you know, it's, it can be very simple, you know, to, to engage. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I love how you said 
right along with your students. I absolutely do. And and it's like it's like a special treat in the day that you get to sit for a few minutes and do this beautiful work of poetry when you're writing with your students. Love that. Madeline, I invite you to share any final uh, thoughts you might have. Yeah, thank you so much. I think in thinking about Ashley and Kat, we're just speaking about this, I would also just recommend starting with the ground, like the literal land that y'all stand on. It's, it's, you know, even thinking about like, has this always been a school, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and for who, right? Like, and so, I, I mean, even thinking about sometimes like the history of parks, if you're, you know, ever interested in, in things of like going a little further with it, but being, but just starting with the literal grounds in front of you, you know, how close is your nearest tree and why? <laughs> um, how close is the nearest green space to your, to your, to your, to, to your schools and also asking your students about that in terms of their mm-hmm. own homes, right? Like what does nature look like in the places that they live around their houses, right? And just kind of keeping more of an eye out as well. And then the other thing is, I think, as Ashley was saying, really encouraging students um, by writing with them. But also, you know, if you are feeling like there is this possible barrier between you and this artistic movement, also, you know, looking up living poets in your area, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to, to, to really look around contemporary poets, even a lot of times we'll or they'll be able to bring poems to you that have to do with exactly where you are or an exact situation that you're in for any grade, really K through 12, all of it. And and a lot of cities, just as a helpful resource, have like writers in the school programs. And so if your school isn't a part of it, though, you can look up for your state. If there is a local arts council or a local writers in the school program, if you're wondering how you can collaborate or get to know about some more of your local writers. And the last uh, little, you know, hint I would give to is some of your independent bookstores, <laughs> they sometimes have um, local sections that's like writings that have happened from around your neighborhood or people who live in the city who have written books, right? Like, so, you know, really reaching out and just thinking communally. I feel like being willing to start trying to build a community around this kind of process and bridging that community of like, you know, schools and the community outside. So schools and parks and arts, right? Like how do we get this kind of triangulation that allows for us to also triangulate people, place and the places that we actually live, right? Yeah. Thank you Find your poet laureate. I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Find your poet laureate, whoever they are. Right. Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank you, ladies, so much. I just have enjoyed this conversation. I could just like simmer here, right? (laughs) For another hour or two and just uh, continue this flow. It's just been amazing. But at this time, I will just just say thank you again um, for being in the space with all of you and sharing and just connecting about parks, poetry, place. A historical connection, stories, uplifting and affirming, like identity, but culture, but also place and what it means for each of us. I'm going to turn it over to Kevin now with some final thoughts. Yeah, thank you all. This has been a really rich conversation and you're right, it probably could go on for another hour or so. <laughs> but we we appreciate that you spent your time with us and the ending and your advice to teachers is like really powerful. And mm. part of the message of write out is definitely 
you don't have to go to a national park. They can walk outside the school grounds or their house, right? I mean, there are inspiration all around us. And I think that's a really important part of the message that uh, we've tried every year with Write Out to make sure that teachers and participants kind of understand. So I want to thank Nabila, Ashley, and Kat, and my wonderful partner, Walina, for joining us on this session. By the time of this broadcast, the write-out will be already in progress, and we hope that people will find time to visit the parks and places around them and find inspiration for writing. Whatever social space you might be in, we're using the write-out hashtag to help connect poems and place and prose and all sorts of things. And finally, we want to let people know that on this Thursday, uh, we're going to be hosting the first of our to Park and Rights, which is an invitation for people to come into a, a Zoom room session and do some writing with everyone else. Um, we do ask that you register for that, and the link for that will be at the Write Out uh, website. So please look for that, and we hope you join us on Thursday. And thank you all one last time. Um, it's been really special to hear your poems and hear your voices and hear the stories, too. So thank you so much. Thank you all. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.